So we're in Colossians 1 still, and we'll be there for a while longer, so don't worry there. So turn uh, to Colossians 1. Uh, we were working our way through the Thanksgiving prayer the past two weeks. Uh, the first of those weeks looking at the Thanksgiving section, we made it from 3 through 8. Uh, last week, my goal was to make it from 9 through 14. We did not quite meet that. So we're still in that 9 through 14 section of the Thanksgiving, that second half of the Thanksgiving. So we're going to just look at 13 and 14 some more. We read them last week, but there's too much in there to to leave it where we did. Uh, we need to talk about those two verses in more detail. Uh, but first, just a recap of where we are. We'll read 9 through 14, then I'll give a quick recap after that. So do I have a volunteer? Uh, if someone could read verses 9 through 14 so we remember where we are. Thank you, Patty. All right. Thank you. All right. So if you look at verse nine, uh, Paul is asking, Paul and Timothy are asking things for the Colossian church. So that's kind of the governing verb for the next few verses there. And there's two main things that they are asking for. There's a lot of details about those two things that can confuse you. But what are the two main things that Paul and Timothy were asking for the Colossians? Filled with the knowledge of his will. Good, so that's the first one. So that's a result of that filling. <laughs> that's a result of that filling. So you have to go down to verse 11 for the next verb. So that they would be filled and they would be what? Strengthened. So their ask, Paul and Timothy's ask for the Colossians is for them to be filled and for them to be strengthened, and everything else in those verses is building on one of those two qualities. Then we get to verse 12. So now the verb changes the governing verb. We're giving thanks to the Father. So there's two things that they're giving thanks for in the rest of the Thanksgiving section. Uh, the first one is in verse 12. What is that? Why give thanks to the Father? Right. So remember what we talked about with like the active and passive nature of qualified there. Who is doing the qualifying? God, not us. We did not achieve something to qualify. We did not put up the best lap time in uh, uh, qualifying at a race. God did the work to qualify us to share in the inheritance. And then how fitting for Paul and Timothy to thank God for qualifying us. If it was our doing, he would thank us, right? If we made the decision all on our own, he would be giving thanks to us, but we didn't. We made a decision because God enabled it. And so you give thanks to God who enabled that decision. Uh, what is the inheritance? Eternal life, heaven, glory. Uh, 
the hope of life in Christ, however you want to explain it, all those are correct. Uh, that is the inheritance. Now, how would that have sounded to a Jew? I'm just hitting the things we talked about quickly. How would that have sounded to a Jew that these Gentile Colossians have a share in the inheritance? Shocking. <laughs> inheritance, Old Testament. Inheritance was everything. Family lineage was everything as a Jew. And so now these Gentiles have been brought into the church, which is shocking enough, but that they share in the same hope of glory that you do as a Jew. That was a shocking thing because Paul and Timothy are using Jewish language, Old Testament theology here to explain these things. All right. That was the first thing that they gave thanks for here, this qualification for inheritance. And then what's the last phrase of 12? Inheritance of who? Saints in light. Yeah, now hang on to that word. Keep that word in your mind as we go to the next part of this in verse 13. Saints in light. Okay. Now, let's look at 13 and 14 in depth and connect it back. So I'll reread 13 to start with. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So what's going on in this verse? What is this that Paul and Timothy are giving thanks for? Yeah, good. Yeah, so there's two verbs going on, and that was one of them. So this transfer, or transferred, we'll make it that past tense. All right, what's the other verb going on in uh, 13? Delivered. Two governing verbs here. Well, why are we giving thanks? We're giving thanks because, because God delivered you and transferred you. All right. Now, what were you delivered from? Evil, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good way to a good way to explain it. The domain of darkness. Now, what is a domain? A realm. Yeah. So, if we talk about a domain now, like a, a country has a domain, what is it normally referred to? Boundaries. Yeah. A lot of the time, it's a smaller territory that somebody owns. Well, that's a domain of or territory of. This country. So we, we kind of think of that typically in smaller terms. What about the permanence of something called a domain? I know that seems like a weird question, but I promise there's a reason I'm asking it. Okay, right. Right, and I think you're hitting on that part with the wars, really hitting on the essence of this word. What is the permanence of domain? Is it always going to be there no matter what? No, it's very transitory. It can change. A war, you die, you lose your domain, right? Uh, if your house is your domain and you sell it, you no longer have that domain. All right. So we kind of use the word more in those terms. What is this contrasting with? Because there's two, uh, using big words that the commentators use, antithetical parallels in this verse. <laughs> I know, everybody just had that on the tip of their tongue ready to go, right? Uh, we'll just use the word contrast. That's a little bit easier. Uh, <laughs> light and darkness, okay. Does it say domain of light? 
I added another trick in there. <laughs> right. Well, you go backwards to verse 12, and what are we? Saints in light. We're sharing in this inheritance of the saints in light. But then we go into this next contrast. And the contrast, theologically, is darkness and light. But what is the vocabulary? Darkness and what? Actually, first, I'm sorry. Let's do this first. Yeah, domain versus kingdom. Hard to write when the board starts bouncing. All right. Domain versus kingdom. So compare those two words. We already talked about domain. What about kingdom? What about that word? Bigger, more permanent. Now, of course, on this earth, kingdoms rise and fall still. But yeah, I mean, if you want to compare kingdom and domain, one is definitely a more powerful word. It's a more expansive word than just domain. So even in the words, in, in, in the Greek, the word for domain is just exousia. It's just power. Uh, so that can be power or authority, or in this case, they translate it domain. So that idea is there is a power to this kingdom. Or in, I shouldn't use the word kingdom since we're contrasting these. There is a power to this domain. There's a power to this world of sin and Satan's control. But you compare it to an actual kingdom, and it's immediately dwarfed. It's immediately made to look very pathetic uh, in comparison. So yes, there is power, but there is a true kingdom on the other side. All right, so that's the first part of the contrast. Now let's look at the other contrast. So we already talked about darkness. What is darkness contrasted with here? Because you would expect light, right? And we just mentioned light in verse 12. But what is the contrast in verse 13? It's a contrast you'd always make, right? Darkness and a beloved son. But that's the uh, contrast being made. So these are the two realms and the two verbs uh, related to the realms of deliverance and transference between this domain of darkness and this kingdom of the beloved son. Okay, what are your thoughts on that as I catch up in my notes here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll talk about the verbs transferred and delivered in just a second. But what about this idea of the beloved son? What is that phrase? Where does it come from? Why should it be significant? Why didn't uh, Paul and Timothy just use the word light? Yeah, right. This is my beloved son uh, in whom I am well pleased. Probably messing up the exact wording there. Uh, yeah, something like that. It depends on the translation, right? Uh, it also comes from the Old Testament. Though. Even there wasn't a new idea. That was the true fulfillment of it. That was like, here's the son. This isn't what I was talking about. But where does the promise go back to? 
Yeah, if you want to go all the way back, it's that proto Evan Evan Jet Genesis three fifteen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that promise that there's going to be a, a seed that will crush the serpent's head. So it goes all the way back to that promise. But even with the wording, go back to Second Samuel. Now, see, the idea is building up all the way to Second Samuel and continues to build after it. But Second Samuel seven. And if you go to verse 12, really expands on this idea. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then verses 12 uh, through 16. And it says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his, what's the word? Kingdom, not domain, kingdom. And in verse 13, continuing, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See the permanence? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a what? Son. And then it goes on, but I think you get the idea from there. So this idea of the beloved son is just building on this rich theology of God's son coming as the Messiah. That's what it's building on, for him to come and establish his kingdom uh, on earth. And that's what we're seeing here in Colossians in this contrast. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see where they get that translation from the Greek. That's still an appropriate one. And yeah, you get you get that idea of the, the word domain a little differently too because power is more normally how we would translate that word. Uh, here, commentators are trying to show you this contrast so they do domain instead of power, but it means the same thing. Um, yeah, that's interesting. All right, let's talk about uh, light for a second. Would it be wrong... To compare beloved son in Colossians with light. No. Why? Right. He said he was a light. Uh, let's see. Rather than going through all of these references, um, go to John 12. John 12 and then verse 46. Actually, I'll start in 44. So John 12, starting in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in what? In darkness. So now that's taking us into comparing these words, this uh, deliverance. And this transference that takes place. So we're delivered out of the kingdom. This is a removal from the world. Now, what does that word deliverance remind you of in Scripture? Egypt. Yeah, I think that's the main contrast or the main picture we're meant to see is this removal out of the world, this rescue from slavery and bondage. 
So what happened to the uh, Israelites physically in this rescue is meant to be this spiritual picture of what's really happened when we're taken out of the world. And of course, then along the way, we're like, oh, but we prefer Egypt sometimes. Okay, that's bad, right? But this removal, this deliverance, this exodus out of the world. And I think that's what the delivered should bring to our minds first. We're being removed from this evil domain of darkness. Okay. But then positively, so that's the negative. We're taken out of, and then we're positively, what happens? What's the other verb there? Delivered and transfers. You're delivered out of and you're transferred into this kingdom. Now, do you know what tenses? Did you see what tenses those two verbs are in? Are they in the future? They're in the past. They're completed verbs. It's not something that will happen. It's not something that is continually happening now. It's not translated like a participle, transferring delivering, it is delivered and transferred. Now, of course, when somebody comes to the faith, then at that moment they have been delivered and transferred, right? So in that sense, it continues. But it is something that is definite that has occurred in the past. You have been delivered and then transferred into this kingdom of the beloved son, this kingdom of light. Comments on that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I think we're meant to see that connection uh, in just a moment when we look at verse 14. Absolutely. Any other comments? Yeah. Yeah, what is the conquering power there? What is the conquering power over the weak power that's conquered in that those verses? The light. When you turn on the light, does darkness ever win? No, the darkness is gone because the lights turn on. Darkness cannot fight back against light. And so that even adds to this kingdom versus just the domain. Uh, that the kingdom of the beloved son is all-powerful, whereas this is limited, it's finite, and it's coming to an end. Um, and every time God pulls somebody out of it, it's that much weaker and that much closer to the final destruction of this evil domain. Um, we see that process taking place in time. All right, so remember what we just said about the verbs as well, though. This delivered and transferred being, technically they're in the air, so this already happened fully in the past, transferred and delivered. Now we go to verse 14. In whom, who's the whom? Christ, right? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's changed from 13 to 14? Now, as Carol already said, it is an explanation on this transfer, of this deliverance and this transfer. But what else has changed from the previous verse to this verse? He adds forgiveness, right? So, okay, uh, let's compare that. Redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Why does he say both? Do they mean different things? Do they mean the same thing? Is one explaining the other? 
So you're saying they mean the same thing said two different ways? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I think you've got it right though with redemption and deliverance. I think that 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 kind of paying off your debt, your slave debt, if you will, to be freed. Um, Christ has done that, in whom we have redemption. Uh, so I think these are two ways of saying the same thing. Or you can you could say that forgiveness of sins is the explanation of the redemption that he's talking about. Um, you've been delivered and transferred. This is your redemption. Well, what does that include? It forgives the forgiveness of your sins. You weren't just taken from here to there and left the way you are. You're taken from here to there, and you've been fundamentally changed. Mm-hmm. Right. I think so. I think so. And I think that covers redemption and forgiveness well here. Now... Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, delivers from evil, so our own sin, uh, the attacks and persecution of the world, the attacks of the devil, all that's really included in there. Uh, it can mean all those things. Um, yeah, so, I mean, deliverance, redemption, they're all so closely connected, and yet you can pull these, pull these fine threads that are slightly different in each description. Uh, that's why they use them all, so we get a bigger picture of what's going on. Uh, but now notice the, the, what I was asking for earlier. Look at the tenses between 13 and 14 and see if you can spot the tenses of the verbs. That's the past, present, future kind of idea. Precisely. We were delivered, definitely it is done, delivered and transferred. But now you move into 14, and we're talking about the present reality of our redemption and the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy. That is our present status as, into verse 12, our present status as who? The saints of light, believers. Uh, The church We were transferred, we were delivered, and now because of that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That makes sense? Any questions or comments on that? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I was learning it probably before that, too, but yeah. And just commentaries and study. and That's why if you study it long enough and pick at it long enough and you have the right hermeneutical framework in mind, then you can pick apart verses well. But it really helps to talk with other people who know the theology well so we don't get off on a wrong track. What? <laughs> there is. And... Uh, 
it was hurting my head to study this, and especially what we're about to dive into in 15 and on. I was telling Hannah when I was looking over it this morning, people talk about like Daniel 7 and on, which I've studied, and it's, it makes your brain hurt. Revelation. I think Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to understand. It makes my head hurt. <laughs> I was looking over it earlier, and it just, the nuances and the depth of doctrine is painfully deep. Um, wonderfully deep at the same time. Uh, but even in 13 and 14, noticing all those things, like something as simple as the tense changing. Uh, we can read quickly and read right over it. And part of it is if we read slowly and pay attention, we'll notice a lot more of these things. I know part of my problem is, you know, my daily reading, I'm just, whoop, read through, uh, check off, you know. Uh, but if we slow down and pay attention, uh, God's spirit will work as we read. All right, any other comments before we wrap up this Thanksgiving section? All right, well, let's move into the next section here. So we've now tackled the full Thanksgiving section. Uh, so if you remember in terms of the structure of Colossians, we had our intro. So in 1, 1 through 2, we had this opening or intro. And then 1, 3 through, what was the final verse? 14. We have this Thanksgiving section. Okay? But now we're moving into the doctrinal section. So from here until the end of chapter 2 will all be this primarily doctrine-focused section. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be living implications mixed in, but primarily it's going to be doctrine, and then three and on will be how to put that doctrine into practice. So the so what, so to speak, of the doctrine. So from 1, 15, on through the end of 2, but for right now we're going to look at 15 through 20. We probably won't make it through 15 through 20 today, uh, but this begins the doctrine section. All right, any questions about where we are in the book? Does that explain it? Was I clear? All right. So, uh, 15 through 20, or really 23, what does the heading of most people's Bibles say, if you have a heading there? Yeah, sometimes the headings I kind of laugh at, just, just it depends, because it's not original, right? It's just whatever the people translating or making your edition thought to call the section. Sometimes I look at these headings, and I just scratch my head, what were they thinking? This is one of the best ones in Scripture, <laughs> the preeminence of Christ. If you want to know what we're talking about in these verses, if you get lost in the minutia and the detail, remember, Christ is bigger, better, and greater than anything else, the preeminence of Christ. Uh, that's what we're talking about in these verses. So looking at 15 through 20 first, though, that part's really broken down into two parts. So the first part, we're going to be talking about old creation, uh, and as we go, I'll explain what this means. But 15 through 17, we're looking at old creation. And then in 18 through 20, we'll be looking at the new creation. And as we begin studying it, that'll become clear why. Let's start by reading 15 through 17 
Actually, no, let's read 15 all the way through 20 so we get the big picture. Can I have a volunteer to read that, please? Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. So did you all see that switch in verse 18? That line that kind of changes what we're talking about a little bit? That's why we draw that line at the end of verse 17 for this Christ over the old creation, Christ over the new creation. All right. So back to the beginning of verse 15. Basically what we're going to see is, have you all ever heard the, the term Christology? Okay, what's Christology mean? However you want to say it is fine if you know the idea. Bingo, the study of Christ. Uh, and Colossians is one of, I mean, all Pauline epistles are rich in Christology. But this section in particular is one of the richest, richest Christology sections in the New Testament period. Uh, so most of what we're going to see is these grand statements about who Christ is. So if you go to verse 15, what is the very first statement about who Christ is? He is God. The image of the invisible God. Think about that for a second. The image of the invisible God. What on earth does that mean? How can you be the image of something that is invisible? You see, it's not a contradiction. It's more of a paradox. But it seems like a contradiction at first. So how can you be the image of what is invisible? What does this mean? That's the big question in verse 15. Right. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And we're going to dig into those verses in just a second. Uh, who are you? Yeah, you're a Mago Dei. You were made in the image of God. So is that the same as Christ being the image of the invisible God? You're made in the image of God. You're human. Christ is human. Right. We're not also God. And so we have to draw a line here as to what image means. We are 100% made in the image of God. We are patterned after him. But now we have to break down kind of two ways to be in the image of God. And we'll look at some verses before we do that because I think it will help us parse this out. Uh, so John 1.18 first. And Preston, can you read that when you get there? So who has seen this invisible God, the Father? Only Jesus. Nobody. No human has ever truly seen the Father. Even Moses, who saw the backside of the glory of God has not truly seen the Father as the Son has. And so this unknown Father 
that we cannot see has been made known through Christ. All right, so that's the first one we'll look at. Uh, Go to John 14 now. Now, this is a slightly longer one. Uh, Lee, are you willing to read 6 through 11? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, take your time. Uh, through 11. All right, so what is this whole debate, not debate, but this whole line of questioning from Philip to Jesus and Jesus' explanation? What's going on here? What does Philip want to see? Who does he want to know? God the Father. And what is he not understanding about who Jesus is? That Jesus is God. So to know Jesus is to know the one who sent him. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And notice he doesn't say to know me is almost as good as knowing the Father. To know me is almost like knowing the Father. To know me is to mostly know the Father. To know me is to know the Father. What does that say about Christ as the image of God? Right. And that means how close is that image? How close was the original? It's not original copy. Don't take that too far. But original copy, so to speak, how far? How close is it? It's exact. There is no difference because it's not really an original and a copy. They're the same, right? Uh, That's how close this connection is. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. It's just restating really what we've talked about. Uh, the context is a little bit different, but the meaning of the statement is the same. So Second uh, Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The exact image of God. Now, is it ever said of mankind, that we are the exact image of God in this way. Can any of us say, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a pretty blasphemous thing for us to even attempt to say. We can't say that. Uh, So how is it different that we are in the image of God and Christ is the image of God? 
Y'all remember in church history the homo usios versus homoi usios debate? Arianism? Okay. Homo usios means of the same substance, meaning the son, the whole debate was over, is Jesus God or not? That was the whole debate. All right. So is Jesus truly God or a lesser God or similar to God but not God? Uh, the Arians said he is homoi usios. He is similar in substance to God, not the same. Uh, meanwhile, actual Christians said no, homo, homo usios, meaning he is the same substance as God. There is no difference. And that was the whole debate. So if you go off one side, you're an Arian and you're a heretic, right? That's similar substance. Christ is not similar to, he is the same substance as the Father. Now we are not homo usios. We are not a uh, homo image, if you will. We are homoi image. We are like God. We are analogically in his image because we are creatures. We are not deity. Does that make sense? We are fully in his image, but not because we are his image. You understand that? But Christ is not different. He is not like. He is not analogically in God's image. He is truly the image of God. Right. That's correct, and we're going to see that the, the next line in verse 15, uh, the firstborn of all creation, and then later talks about all things were created uh, through him. But do you see this difference between this image? Because this is a very fine point of theology, but it's a very important one. You are made in God's image, but you are not God's image in the same way that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. Is everybody confused by this? I can't tell from your faces. Are you in, in shock or you're like, no, we've got it. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't expect you to fully understand this. I certainly don't. Uh, I just want you to understand that there's a difference. Um, that Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact same image of God. That's how we know the fathers because the son has come who represents the father, who pictures the father perfectly. We can't do that, even though we were made in God's image, because we're just finite. You understand that much? Good? Do what? Hmm. But used in different contexts, about different subjects. And that's where, yeah, we got to fine-tune these things, because they are uh, tricky. Right, but he was not made in the image of God the same way mankind was, and he definitely not is, is definitely is not the perfect image of God as the Son is. Uh, so yeah, he fails on kind of all fronts, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, let's make sure I didn't miss anything here, and then we'll keep moving. There's some more ways we can try to parse that out, but I think that's probably enough for now. If I've hurt your brains enough, we'll keep moving. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, that's a good argument for it, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And a lot of people think it's okay in certain contexts. I just 
think so why I can't find a reason that to say we should have images. Um, but, yeah, they stick in your mind. Um, but yeah, all those images are always kind of crafted after what, whatever the culture that painted the picture or made the image. It reflects that one. So if you go to Asia, for instance, their pictures of Jesus make him look kind of Asian. So it's funny how that works. Yeah, making an image in our image is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll move off of that topic because if you get me going on it, we'll be going on it for a while and we don't have time. So we'll talk about that more in depth another time. But yes, I, I agree with y'all. I think so to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, faith has not been made sight yet, but we want it to be sight. I think that's really the heart of what's going on there. All right, second half of verse 15. So he is this image of the invisible God. So he has come to make the Father known. We'll just summarize it with that. What is the next grand statement about Christ? Yeah, the firstborn of all creation. So we had the big question, what does it mean that he's the image of an invisible God? How is he the firstborn of all creation? He was there in the beginning. So he was before creation in that sense. Good. Anything else? A title? So what would that title imply if it's a title? Yeah, yeah. And I think those are the two elements we're meant to see. It's both a time statement because the eternal son of God was begotten, not made. He has always been. He never was created. He has always been truly God, right? Uh, so he is before creation in that sense. Uh, he is the firstborn in that sense, but firstborn is also a title. So both in time and in status, Christ is the firstborn Overall creation. Uh, we don't always think of this the same, but in Jewish culture, what did the rights of the, what was the right of the firstborn son? Everything. <laughs> and so he had a status as firstborn. That was his position that led to certain outcomes, meaning the inheritance of all his family's estate, essentially. So that was his right as firstborn. It was his status. And so Jesus is not only firstborn temporally, but also in terms of position. He is always God, always the Son, always overall. Um, so this grand image of the invisible God is also the firstborn and foremost of creation. All right, any other comments on that? Right. Yeah, well, what caused that? What caused that? What caused that? Uh, yeah, we want to keep going down this chain, but there is no cause for God. He is existence, period. Um, and yeah, that's something at least my mind can't really grasp. Uh, we just have to say what we know to be true from Scripture and 
And we can wonder, but we gotta not go beyond what Scripture tells us. In what way? Yeah. And going back to what I said, that homo versus homoousios thing, that's Arianism. Mormons are modern-day Arians. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are in the same camp, and there's some others. Yeah, that's modern-day Arianism right there. <laughs> he did. Saint Nick punched Arius right in the face. <laughs> He was asking for it. Uh, anyway, um, good. Any other comments on verse 15 before we dive into 16? We might make it through 16 today. We'll see. There's a lot in 16. There was a lot in 15. All right, let me reread 16 and we'll dive into that. Uh, so, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All right. So first phrase of verse 16. For by him all things were created. All right. Do we really need a deep dive into that? Or are you all set? <laughs> right. No, I agree. Uh, well, just, just let's look at John 1, 3 because we can. Uh, we can't just read verse 3. Let's see. Uh, Carol, would you be willing to read 1 through mm, one through 3? Yeah, that's good. I said three, but I wanted to read through five or four, so good. Uh, yeah, and that, that's not just not having glasses issue. Uh, look at the grammar there. Uh, all things were made through him. All right, positive statement. Without him was not anything made that was made. So notice how redundant that is, and you get the positive and the negative side. So in case you didn't get it from all things were created through him, nothing was made that wasn't made through him. And it just makes your head hurt all the different ways it's said. Uh, by him all things were created, this light, this eternal Son of God, the Word, the exact image of God. By him all things are made. All right, and then we get a description of these all things in case we think something has been left out. In case we think that there is something that Jesus and God did not make. Jesus, God, did not make. All right, what are those things? There's some uh, two pairs, and then we get a list of things. Heaven and earth, so that's one pair. Visible and invisible, that's the other pair. And then after that, there's a longer list. Uh, so the two pairs, uh, heaven and earth, what does that entail? <laughs> Pretty much everything. Yeah, heaven and earth is normally that shorthand for all things, right? Uh, and yet, Paul and Timothy don't stop with heaven and earth, do they? That's supposed to cover everything. 
but then they're going to go in more detail as well. But everything in creation, everything physical in creation, outer space, uh, the furthest reaches of the universe, or if it keeps going, I don't know, uh, every element of the universe, every element of the earth, the air, atoms, molecules, whatever, it was made by God. Nothing escapes that. All right, so that's covering really more the physical realm, but it's often used to encompass everything. What's the next pair? Just ah, God made the world, but he didn't make the angels. That might be an exception, right? That might be a counter-argument. He made heaven and earth. Yeah, he made physical things, but he did make spiritual things. What's the next pair? Yeah, visible and invisible. Oh, but he did. He made the world. He made the physical. He made the visible. But he also made the invisible. Anything spiritual, air, anything that you can't see, it doesn't mean God didn't make it. Uh, visible and invisible. And then even more, it's like, oh, but still, maybe some of the demons, maybe Satan is another god and not created. Maybe, you know, on and on, whatever you want to come up with. Uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. What are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? What we're in? Yeah, so like just the kingdom of the world, the nations. Yeah, okay, good. That's definitely part of it. Anyway, anything else you want to include? Any way else you want to parse that apart? Yeah, what was the word we used for the kingdom? Not, not the kingdom. What was contrasted against the kingdom of the beloved son? The domain of darkness. Uh, so dominion, domain, that's the same root word there. Uh, whether thrones, so maybe that's earthly rulers, dominions. Sometimes that's used in scripture, this phrase together for spiritual rulers of the world. So demonic powers, uh, Satan, uh, the nations, it can refer to that too. All these things are encompassed by all these words. Uh, rulers, authorities, any power, any spiritual power, anything in this world was created by God. Period. There's nothing that escapes. You can't come up with an exception to anything here. You can't add anything that, ah, but what about Paul and Timothy cover everything with this? Really, two or three times over, they cover everything with this. And in case you didn't get the message, what comes after the hyphen there, at least in my Bible, in verse 16? All things. Yeah, in case you didn't get the message, all things, everything that is not God was made. God made all things. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, when he when the beast is said to be thrown into the lake of fire, is the lake of fire that was prepared for him is the language. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, the world around us has developed this picture where, like, Satan's in control of hell and then God's in control of everything else. You know, you go to Satan's place to be punished. No, that's where he's punished, too. So, yeah, absolutely. I don't know why the world has done that. Uh, they just like to twist the truth. Um, I'll leave it at that, I guess. All right, so all things, 
All things were created through him. And that connects back with the John idea. All things were made through Christ because Christ is God. And then what is the last phrase of verse 16? Because it's easy to read over and not think about. But what is the last phrase of that verse say? For him. Good to have you back. All right, well, we're closing with this idea of for him at the end of Colossians 1.16. So what does for him mean? How are all things created through him and for him? Or if you look at the Greek, ice is into or, or for, well, yeah, for or into, unto Christ. For his glory? Yeah, absolutely. For his glory? For his, yeah, for his kingdom, for his rule. Uh, good. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All the creativity, if you will, that we have in our minds, that's being in the image of God. Not in the same way Christ is, uh, but being in the image of God. Um, that creativity. Uh, just like looking at all the variation in creation, it's like, well, why do we need so many weird subsets of these animals? Like, well, God's showing off his, his greatness, his majesty, uh, his own creativity. Um, but this is something we don't often think about. Christ made all things. We know the answer. Well, it's for his own glory. But the purpose of him making all things, the purpose of him doing everything that he done, has done is for himself. It is to glorify himself. It is because that is what he chose to do. That is to magnify himself. So not only did he create all things, did he begin all things, but he began all things with an end goal of pointing back to him in the end. So it's not a loop, but it's this very directional. He starts it for a definite end. It was all done for his glory. Thoughts or comments about that? Because that's a fairly profound statement with two words. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that is for him. That is unto him, to him. Yeah, one quote from a commentator is that Christ has, has designed that he himself be the goal of his own creation. He's the source and the end goal of his own creation. Pretty incredible thought. One that our minds can't really comprehend fully. But that's what the word tells us. All right, any? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And why can't we say for us? Why can't this be true for us that we did this and this and this for our own ultimate end? I mean, of course, we want to do that. But why is it wrong for us to say that? But it's right for God. Do what? Right. Right. And if you really test the world on that, 
They know that. They just won't admit it. Um, but who gets the praise in a sports, uh, in a game, any sports game? The champion gets the praise. The champion gets the trophy. The champion gets the honor and glory, at least till next year when they get beat and somebody else gets it, right? They know that the best gets the most praise, the most honor. Uh, nobody sees the president walk in and honors the hobo off the street over them. It's like, oh, sorry, this homeless guy here, he deserves more uh, praise than you. Nobody does that. Nobody in the world does that, and they know it, but they won't admit it. Uh, so only he who is truly worthy deserves it. So we're not worthy, therefore it is wrong to praise ourselves or to seek that praise. But God is worthy because he is infinite. Therefore, he is worthy of all praise and all good. And that's where we can be thankful that we have a good and loving God who has uh, redeemed us and transferred us, and uh, now we enjoy redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right, any other final comments before I close this in prayer? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you praise. You are the firstborn over all creation. By your hand, all things were made uh, through you and for you. Uh, It is by your hand, by your work, that you delivered us from that domain of darkness, that you transferred us into your kingdom, your kingdom of goodness and light. Uh, And it is by you that we have this redemption, this forgiveness of sins, uh, that we stand cleansed and pure before our Father. You have come to make him known so that we can be in relationship with God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this. Uh, Help us to go into worship with a a mind and a heart of praise, that we would give you praise as our creator, as our sustainer, and as our redeemer. Lord Jesus, help us to do this this morning. pray in your name.